Well, I want to ask you this morning how you might react to this statement. Christians aren't sinless. I think all of us will be the first to raise our hand and say, I agree with that, right? We understand even as we grow in Christ, the more we grow in the Lord, the more we become aware of the depth of our own sins. But now I want to ask you, what do you think about this statement? Christians will sin less. Now that might take a little more thought from us today, but I believe it's true. When people become believers, our whole relationship with sin changes. And what we discover is that what we once used to love, we now hate. What we desired, we now resist. And what we once enjoyed, now upsets us. I'll never forget a number of years ago, a young man who was a new believer here at Bethel. And he said to me one day, he said, there's a certain video game that I will no longer play. This was a video that glorified the violence of killing. Now, it was not just a little kid's arcade shoot 'em up game that we might all enjoy, but it was a game that reveled in bloodlust, in the gore of blowing somebody else away. And this young man said this to me, he said, I love that game, but I can't play it anymore. God would not want me to. And what that reflects is a changed attitude towards sin is always an identifying mark of every Christian. The Bible simply teaches us that once we become believers, we simply cannot go back to living the way we once did. Now, why is that true? Well, this morning, as we come to Romans 6, we are going to learn why that is true. We're coming to a message that I've simply entitled, Dead to Sin and Alive to God, which is a statement in Romans 6, verse 11. And it is because of this new relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ that our lives as believers are changed forever. Now, as we move from Romans 5 to Romans 6, we are moving from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. We are moving from how do we get right with God to how do we live a holy life before God. We move from our standing in grace to our walk because of grace. Now, every good sermon has at least these three parts, explanation, illustration and application. And the Apostle Paul brings all three of these for us as he teaches us this wonderful truth. In verses 1 to 2, he explains what he means. Then he gives us two wonderful illustrations. And then finally, what does this mean for our lives practically? Verses 6 through 10. Let's take our Bibles, shall we? And let's open to Romans 6 this morning. It's about page 1120 or 21 in your chair Bible. I encourage you to open your Bible to that passage. And let's just take a moment, shall we, and let's pray together. Lord God, how important it is as we come to Romans 6 
to learn the great relationship that we've entered into with the Lord Jesus Christ and the transformation that it has made in our lives so that our whole relationship to sin is now changed. And we want to live for you in a brand new way. Teach us now the very foundation of this wonderful truth that we might indeed live for the glory of God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's notice as we begin with verses 1 and 2 a very important foundational truth. That believers have been separated from sin's ruling power. If you know Christ in a real way this morning, this has happened to you. You have been separated from the ruling power of sin. Now, notice what he says in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, verse 1 is a statement of one of the most dangerous misconceptions about God's grace. It is the idea that since we are saved by grace through faith without works, that sin is now somehow okay and God will simply overlook it in our lives. Bible students call this concept by a very, very fancy word. It is the word antinomianism. And it's a word that is made up of two Greek words. The word anti means against. The word namas means law. So the word simply means against the law. I looked this up in the Oxford Dictionary just to see what a plain dictionary might say, and they gave a very good explanation of this word. Antinomianism means this, Christians are released by grace from the uh, obligation of observing the moral law. That's what antinomianism teaches. When I was a boy, we uh, sang uh, a hymn on a regular basis. Written by a very well-known hymn writer, Philip Bliss. He's written many wonderful hymns. And this was a hymn about our freedom from the law. And I used to love to sing that hymn growing up. Well, there was a wise guy who decided to change the words in the hymn and turn it into somewhat of a spoof. And this is what he wrote. Free from the law, O happy condition. Now we can sin, for we have permission. I can see some of you know the song and know the spoof. But that is really an excellent statement of what antinomianism teaches. And you know the absolute truth is, if we're not careful, this can work its way into our thinking, because quite honestly, we all can be antinomians at heart if we're not careful. Let me give you a few ways in which this is expressed. I had a pastor friend who was a colleague of mine. One day in a ministry context, he actually said this. He said, grace means you can do it if you want to, but you shouldn't. Can you imagine a pastor standing before a group of people saying, this is what grace is? Grace means you can do whatever you want to, but you shouldn't. And then some of us perhaps have heard this. 
a young woman planning to do something she knew was wrong said to her pastor one day as he met with her to counsel with her, she said, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. God will forgive me. That is antinomian thinking. It is the thinking that grace now means it's okay to sin and forgiveness will make it all right. I can do what I want because after all, I'm now a child of God. God loves me and He will overlook and forgive. That is antinomianism. Now I want you to notice Paul's response to this in verse 2. He says, by no means. That is one of the strongest ways in the original language to say or denounce something. Bible students aren't always sure exactly how to bring out the force in the English. And so here's a number of translations. Far be the thought. Absolutely not. Of course not. One translation says, that's unthinkable. Can I just say this morning, are you crazy? That's sort of the idea. What is Paul saying? He's saying that no true Christian thinks this way. Now, we praise God for His daily forgiveness, and all God's people said, Amen. But a true believer cannot continuously be comfortable living in sin. And if we say, why is that true? The Apostle Paul's explanation in verse 2, look at it, is... How can we who died to sin still live any longer in it? Now what Paul is teaching us here is a very important foundational truth for living the Christian life. He is telling us that when Jesus died on the cross, there are two ways that He died in relationship to sin. He died for sin, we all know that. But this chapter says he died to sin. In fact, look down at verse 10 and notice what verse 10 says. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but now the life he lives, he lives to God. Now what is meant by this? That Jesus died to sin and what does this mean in our lives? One of the most helpful statements that I've ever seen that helps us to understand this came from Charles Ryrie, the author of the Ryrie Study Bible. And I want you to notice what Dr. Ryrie said, because it's very helpful for us at this point. He said, the idea of death does not mean either extinction or cessation, but it means separation. Separation. Let me give you an example. When we die physically, the soul separates from the body and enters eternity. We all know the soul is still alive. It is not extinct, but it now lives in another realm. It either lives in heaven or it lives in hell. So the soul of a person who has died is no longer able to dominate their body 
like it did when that person was alive on earth. I've shared with you that I was with my father when he took his last breath. And it was so obvious the soul had left and we saw a change in his color almost immediately as his body now lay there motionless the soul was gone, no longer able to dominate his body. Well, now bring that thought here. To be dead to sin means we're separated from sin's domination over our lives. Now, did you notice something very, very important? It does not say sin died to us, does it? It doesn't say that. See, sin as a power is very much alive in us. That's why we're all still tempted and we all do sin. But sin has lost its undisputed rule in us. We start off this morning with a song by Charles Wesley. And I mentioned to you that he has written over 6,000 hymns. One of the songs we could have sung this morning as we began was O Four Thousand Tongues. And in that song, Charles Wesley, who was so great at, at exploring biblical teaching in his hymns, distinguishes these two ways in which Christ died for sin and to sin. Let's look at what Wesley said, what we often sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Well, canceled sin is sin that's been forgiven. That's He died for sin. But He breaks the power of that sin. That's He died to sin. And then we continue on in the song. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. Well, His blood makes the foulest clean. That's He died for sin. But He sets the prisoner free that's He died to sin. Now when we come to know this Savior who has died to sin for us, our whole relationship to sin now begins to change. Now, let me give you a couple of statements from some well-known Bible teachers. One of my old professors, Grant Osborne, who is now in heaven, had this to say, he said, sin has now become a force tempting us rather than a power controlling us. And that is so helpful. Sin is now a force, yes it is, tempting us. But it's no longer the power controlling us. And Pastor Jim Boyce, who is also now in heaven in a sermon on this very text, said Romans 6.2 is the most important verse in the Bible for living a holy life. This Truth is the foundation for what it means now to live the Christian life for God. And that's why the whole of Romans chapter 6 is really helping us understand what it means that we have died to sin. Now the Apostle Paul understands the great importance of illustrations. And so as he moves on in this text, he gives us two very, very helpful illustrations. And I want us to see them in verses 3 to 5. Let's look at them together for just a moment, alright? Here's the first one. Baptism illustrates our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. Look at verse 3. 
Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Did you notice the word baptism occurs three times? And these early Roman Christians who had witnessed many baptisms, would think back on their baptism and they would remember what was taught. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment and say this. What is said in these verses can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit, not by water. Remember what John the Baptist said one day as he was introducing Jesus? He said, I baptize you with water. But there's somebody coming after me, he said, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So only that baptism in the Holy Spirit can accomplish what these verses are saying. But water baptism is a beautiful picture or illustration of this wonderful relationship. The word baptism is a very interesting word. It comes from a root word, bapto, and bapto meant to dip in to die, and it is the root word for the word baptism. Now, as we look this morning at this white cloth dipped into a bucket of purple dye, we all begin to understand what the meaning here is of being baptized. Let me share with you what someone has written. In the first century, baptism meant identification. It was a fuller's term, the dry cleaner of ancient days. When he took a white garment like this one and dipped it into the scarlet dye, he was said to have baptized the garment. The white garment's identity was changed to scarlet. Baptizo, our word for baptism, was the term that was used when the dyer changed its identity. Now let's bring that right here. Baptism illustrates that when we receive Christ, we are spiritually united to Him. We've entered a relationship with the Lord Jesus that radically alters our lives like this purple dye radically alters the color of that white garment. What a beautiful illustration baptism is. By the way, you remember a few weeks ago when I started the series on Romans, I told you about a young lady who said, Pastor, I'm going to start memorizing Romans. And she's read it through at least once now. She's getting baptized this year out in Lake Superior. What a wonderful day that's going to be. She told me last week, Pastor, I'm planning to get baptized. What a great day that's going to be. But I want you to notice now Paul gives us a second illustration. And the second illustration is very helpful as well. Grafting illustrates our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall be certainly united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now what is this telling us? 
Well, it's telling us this union is real. It is a life-changing union. Notice that united with Him is found twice. Baptism found three times. Paul wants us to get that illustration. Now this being united with Him found twice. He wants us to get this illustration. And that little phrase, united with Him, is a very interesting term. It means grown together, and it was used of the process of grafting. Now, some of us are into horticulture. We are into uh, plants. And we understand how grafting takes place. In grafting, you cut a shoot from one plant. It's called the skion, which means shoot. You then attach it to a splice in another plant, and that plant is called the stock. When those are brought together, that's called the graft union. They are wrapped and sometimes waxed and allowed to grow together. Need I tell you what happens when the graft takes hold? Of course, I can just show you what happens. They are united as one, and the life of the tree flows into the life of the branch. Now, notice what this says. This is a real union. And as we can see, it produces real life. Now, this is exactly then in the spiritual realm what happens when we receive Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, it is a real union. The benefits of His death and His resurrection are grafted into us, and spiritually we become one with Him. The powerful Holy Spirit now enters our lives. He breaks the power of sin, and He gives us new life. So real... And so vital is this, the Bible now says Christ lives within us. In fact, one of our favorite verses makes this so beautifully clear, Galatians 2.20. Let's, let's read it together, shall we? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. All God's people said this morning, Amen. That's what the Apostle Paul has been describing. Now, clearly, there are lots of questions about this. There are many implications. And Paul works out all of these in the rest of Romans chapter 6. But this morning, as we look at the rest of this opening section, verses 6 through 10, we want to see at least three applications. And there's one that I'm going to focus on, especially this morning, all right? 
So here are the applications. Number one, our old life is over for good. Number two, our slavery to sin is now ended. And number three, our new life with Christ is permanent. It'll never end. And it's the life that now becomes dominant for the believer. Let's read through uh, verses 6 through 10. And then it's the first application that I want us to focus in on here as we finish this message that our old life is over for good. Look with me starting at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him, certainly in the future in the resurrected state, but that new life begins now. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Now let's look at that first application. Our old life is over for good, according to verse 6. You will notice here, he says, that our old self was crucified with him. If you happen to have the English Standard Version like I do this morning, you'll notice there's a little footnote. And you look in the margin and you'll notice that it literally says the old man. The old man. Now it's translated old self because it includes men as well as women. So that's the idea here. It's referring to the person that we were spiritually before we were saved. Now, I want you to follow very carefully here this morning because this is so important for our ongoing battle with sin. The old self or the old man is not the same as the old nature or the flesh which continues on after we are saved. The old nature or the flesh, as we're going to see, particularly in chapter 7, is the source of sin that wars against us until we see Jesus. That's not what is being described here. The old self or the old man is a comprehensive term for all that we were before we were saved and came to know Christ. And if we were to ask this question, what was it that we were before this period of salvation came? Well, all we have to do is go back to Romans 5. And we saw everything that was true of our old man. Look what it says about us before we're saved. We're powerless. Romans 5, 6. We had an anti-God outlook. Romans 5, 6. Every one of us in our sin was rebellious against God. I will have my way, not God's way. And as a result of all of that, Romans 5.10, we were all the enemies of God. This was you before you came to know Christ. If you're not a believer here today, this is you. 
But when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the benefits of His death and His resurrection are given to us. Romans 6.6 6 says, Our old self was crucified with Him. What now is true of us? Well, look what Romans now says about us. We now, as a new person, have the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 3 and 4. We have a love God outlook, Romans 8, 28. There is a new desire within us to resist the sins of the old life, Romans 7, 22. And we now are a friend of God. We belong to His family, Romans 5, 1. You know what this means this morning? This means that we can draw a great big X over the old man. And we can say as a Christian, that old man, that old self that I was, is now gone for good. I know it's a little early here this morning. A couple of weeks ago, somebody said, Pastor, I felt like saying hallelujah 300 to- three different times. And I said, well, you didn't say it because you're not Southern Baptist. So, but it's a little early this morning, but all of us this morning can say together, Amen. Amen. This is what has happened. Now, do you know in the history of the church... Some people have believed this so dramatically, they've actually changed their names to reflect their new life. I've shared with you before that when my great-grandfather immigrated from Sweden to America, the first place he settled was Cadillac before he eventually made his way to the UP. Very interesting, my father was in the home the day that his grandfather, my great-grandfather, passed away. He was laying on the couch. My great-grandmother was making lunch. She called to John, and John never got off the couch. My dad was there that day as a nine-year-old, remembered how his grandfather peacefully went to be with the Lord in heaven. But what happened was, when he got to Cadillac, He was baptized as a Christian. And he changed his name. His name had been John Erickson, and he now changed it to John Leaf. I don't know all the reasons why he changed his name. I'm sure there were far more Ericksons that he thought complicated his identity, and he wanted to be a little different perhaps than all the other Swedes. But it's interesting, he changed his name when he was baptized. And he was doing far more than just turning over a new leaf, pun intended. He was now saying, I'm a new man. I'm a new man. I'm no longer John Erickson. That man is dead. I'm now John Leaf. And I'm a Christian. And I belong to Jesus.
And as a believer, you will never be your old man again. You are now new in Jesus Christ. And if you are not a believer, you are still that old man. Christ wants to change you, transform you, and make you after His image. Now this morning, as we conclude this message, I, I want to just draw a few very brief observations for you that will just kind of help us to think about this and work it out in our lives before we conclude by reading together the very words of Jesus on this very issue. Alright? So here they are. Number one. Salvation gives a new quality of life, not just an everlasting life. One of the mistakes we often make in teaching people about eternal life is we put all the focus on the fact that you'll live forever in heaven. While that is true, that's not really the foundation of what eternal life is. Eternal life is a new quality of life. It is a new relationship we enter into. And it begins now at the moment we trust Christ and will continue all through our life as we grow to be more like Him. And then one day it will conclude for all eternity in heaven. But it is primarily a changed life, the life of God coming into our hearts. Number two, Christians can fall into sin. We know that we can backslide. We know that that happens. But we cannot stay permanently in that sin. Many years ago, I had a friend of mine who said to me, the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is a Christian may fall into sin, but the Christian will hate it. The non-Christian falls into sin and loves it. And I believe the Bible bears that out. That is true. Number three, believers can and do commit the sins of the old life. There's probably not a week that goes by that in thought, word, and deed, we do not commit the sins of the old life. But we can never go back to that old life entirely. We can never be all that we once were. Yes, we will commit those sins throughout this life until Jesus takes us home but not like we once did. And then finally, non-Christians are bound by their natures. When you add motives to all that we do, nothing that a non-Christian ever does is anything but tainted with sin. But Christians have real freedom in Christ because He works within us that we might do those things that are now pleasing to God. Now this teaching that the Apostle Paul is giving to us is nothing other than what Jesus taught Himself in the days in which He walked on the earth. And you know these verses very, very well. And the Apostle Paul will pick up on this thought later about release from slavery. We're now sons and daughters who are permanently in the family. We belong to it forever. And we've experienced 
this freedom from the dominating control of sin in a way that we didn't have before. Let's read Jesus' words together as we close this morning. John 8, 34-36, join me. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray, shall we? Let's bow our hearts and our heads this morning. As we're before the Lord and our eyes are closed and no one is looking around, do you understand this freedom that the Bible is talking about? Have you experienced this transformation so that you know I've died with Christ in my old life. I'm alive with Christ in my new life. Yes, I still struggle with sin. I still do sin. But I know. I'm no longer John Erickson. I'm John Leaf. The old is past. The new has come. Listen, if you are not sure of that, you must be sure. This is the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. You can never live the Christian life until this radical transformation has happened and you affirm it and believe it and stand upon it. And today, if you need Christ, right where you're sitting, you can turn to Him. You can confess your sinfulness, your need. You can invite the Lord by faith to trust you. You can tell Him you're repenting, turning from your own way, and you're turning to Him and placing your trust in what He's done for you on the cross. And you can by faith claim the promise of His Word. If you do that today, we'd love to know about it. We'd love to help you. We want to come alongside of you, encourage you, pray for you, offer you assistance as you begin to live this new Christian life. Please let us know if you've made that commitment today. Father, we love you. We love you for what you've done. We love our Savior. The Christian life is all about our identity with Him, our union with Him our transformation in Him. We thank You for Your glorious forgiveness of the sins that we do commit. We thank You for this transformation that is true and real and vital. Christ Himself living in us. How we love You today. For Jesus' sake. Amen.